The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. All right, good morning, Park Church. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 52. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the pew back there in front of you. You can use that one today, and if you don't have one at home, please feel free to take that one with you as a gift from Park Church. If you are using that Bible, we're on page 474. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like an ol- a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. A few announcements before we pray and open Psalm 52. First, Monday night and Tuesday night of this week, we are hosting a seminar downstairs, actually it's going to be up here, um, from 6.30 to 8.15. Um, Child care is provided. Uh, The topic is going to be sex, marriage, and singleness. Um, We're going to be talking together, thinking together about how does the Bible, and particularly how does the gospel shape our understanding of these things, um, what we do with these things, how we live in the light of these things. Um, If you are considering engagement, or maybe you're engaged, and you are wanting to enter into the premarital process here at Park Church Denver, Um, The two nights of that seminar are step one in entering into that process. I want to encourage you particularly to come, um, but but for everyone. We're going to take up some of the topics we discussed last week um, and and really engage with how how does the Scripture shape our understanding of sex, marriage, and singleness. That's tomorrow night and Tuesday night at 6.30. If you want more information, you can find that information over at the info table over in that corner um, or online. Next, um, on September 8th, um, we are kicking off our Park Teens ministry that began last year as an attempt to come alongside parents and um, seek to really disciple teenagers in this church body. And so um, if you are a teenager or you know a teenager or you've heard of a teenager, um, we would encourage you on Tuesday nights, um, kicking off this uh, on September 8th, um, that ministry will be kicking off again. You can get, again, more information online. Um, we're hosting a worship night on Thursday, September 10th. Our hope is to periodically come together Um, Not just on Sundays, but on a night during the week. Just have some extended, unhurried time to just pray, seek the face of God, um, praise God for who He is and what He's done for us in the light of the gospel, and enjoy together the presence of God. And last thing I want to mention to you, and this is particularly for you college students, um, Sunday night, September September 13th, immediately after the 5 p.m. service, um, so that's an encouragement, one, to come to the 5 p.m. service, Uh, but after that service, we're going to be getting together Um, We're going to have dinner that night together and and talk about what does it mean to um, kind of transition from 
uh, high school to college? And what does it mean to be a part of the local church, to commit yourself to the local church, um, and, and pursuing Jesus in um, the local church during these particular years? Um, one of the worst statistics, most horrifying statistics um, I've heard recently is statistics related to um, how, uh, what percentage of um, college students leave the church after leaving home um, and moving into college. We want to talk about why the local church is important to your discipleship, um, why the local church matters, and, and how um, we particularly here at Park Church want to walk alongside you um, during these years. We're excited um, that you're here, and our hope is to, to, to journey with you through these, these next few years that are extremely formative um, as you seek to, to bear God's image as a man or a woman. Let's pray and then turn back to Psalm 52. So Father, I pray now that you would send your spirit. Your spirit would come and in my brothers and sisters in this room, that your spirit would come and allow us to to, to know your love. To to not only know your love, but to be strengthened in such a way that, um, that we would know with Jesus, that we'd know with one another the height and the depth and the breadth of your love. That we would know that which surpasses knowledge. In other words, this simply wouldn't be an intellectual exercise in comprehending your steadfast covenant love, but rather your spirit might come, that we would not only know it intellectually, but we would experience it through your presence. And God, no sermon can do that, no, no set of songs, even songs that, that herald um, the, the, the ongoing forever nature of your love, that no, um, nothing can make that happen apart from your spirit. And so come, for, for my friends in this room who, who've walked with you for years, I pray that you would come and today would, would mark them in a new way as they comprehend your love. But for those who are in this room who, who are still trying to figure out who you are and what they believe about your existence or non-existence, oh God, I pray that you would come and overcome everything with your love. So make yourself known as our Father today. In your name we pray, amen. Um, Immediately after this service, we're going to have the the privilege of ordaining um, three new men as elders here at Park Church Denver. Um, One of those men um, named Joel Olympic, who who is also on staff here, he's one of our, he he coordinates all of our worship and liturgy week in and week out, has a special power. Now, not all elders have special powers. Um, several of them um, don't have, several, uh, have special powers. But Joel actually possesses a secret power that, that not a whole lot of people know about. Um, I discovered this power um, just shortly after his arrival um, in Denver, Colorado. I, I'd made a passing comment about uh, I was going to be traveling to a, a different city um, and just made the passing comment, I'm going there. And he threw out three coffee shops immediately that I needed to go to um, to drink coffee in this city. I thought it was strange that he would know about coffee in this random city, um, but, but I just took it as maybe he just travels to this city quite frequently, and, and he knows about where to get coffee in that place. Um, what I've discovered, though, about Joel is that it, it's, it's, it's a game that you can actually play with him. Um, I haven't found the bottom yet. I, I'm sure there is one. There's a line, a threshold of, of size, of population in certain cities that once you cross below that threshold, you probably won't have answers for you. But pretty much any city I've ever traveled to, and let me just add a qualifier onto this, worldwide, 
Um, if I send Joel a text message as I'm, la- as I'm landing in said city or pulling into said city, if I just send him a text message and say, hey, where should I get coffee? He will send me no less than two or three strong recommendations of places that I should go get coffee. Places that none of you, none of us would have heard of. Places I don't even know exist. I have no idea how it exists. But because most often the text messages are returned to me in such rapid succession that there's no way he went and looked it up online. He just immediately, out of the wealth of encyclopedic wealth of knowledge that he has, um, he he would send me a place, this is the place you've got to go get coffee. And and he has never failed to send me to to, to get coffee from the the greatest places to get coffee ever imaginable. Now, places that you feel really embarrassed, at least I generally feel very embarrassed to walk into, a little bit. A little bit like, I don't know what to order here. My jeans aren't tight enough, that kind of thing. Um, but, but I always know that wherever he sends me, um, it may be intimidating. I might be embarrassed. I might not be dressed appropriately, but it's going to be the best coffee I've ever had in my entire life. Which means every time I arrive in a new city, whether I'm on vacation or on a trip, I'm, I'm faced with a dilemma. Will I trust in my own gifts and abilities to locate the place that I want to get coffee? Or will I trust in, rely in, dare I say, take refuge in, the, 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 the recommendations made um, by Joel. Now, now, this is a funny illustration, right? And it's actually, it, I'm genuine. It, it is absolutely true. You can test it out um, if Joel will give you his phone number. Um, and all of you should ask for after the service. <laughs> but, 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 but in reality, one of the things that the Bible does for us, but really surprisingly, is the way that it divides the world. You see, in our day and age, um, we try to divide the world around all kinds of different things. But we divide it around race. We, we will often divide it around politics. Um, the political season's about to kick off in earnest. Um, and one of the things that happens most dramatically every time a presidential race comes up is the whole world seems to be divided around, are, are you on the right or on the left? Um, but we divide, the, we divide the, the, the world according to the way that we dress, the kind of music that you listen to. We, we find all kinds of odd reasons, odd ways of dividing the world. Um, but the Bible doesn't divide the world that way. But it does divide the world. It, it divides the world fundamentally, not in terms of what you know or don't know and wh- or what you do or you don't do. And it doesn't even divide the world in terms of who does the good things and who does the bad things. Who are the moral people and who are the immoral people? No, it, it divides the world around one singular question. Where will you take refuge? It divides the world along the question, who will you trust? And so we, call, we, we come to this psalm, Psalm 52, and what we find in the beginning is, is this, this description of a man that the, the psalmist David begins to implore, begins to plead with and describe to us um, a, a man who lives his life in a particular way. He then turns um, and then begins to describe a, a different kind of person himself, living a different kind of way. And so I want to look first at kind of that, that division. And then I want us to ask the question, which I think the psalm answers for us, um, beginning in verse Verse 5, I want to ask the question, what makes these two people different? What's the division that David is describing for us? Uh, Beyond these external descriptions, beyond the description of the fruit of the tree, uh, how does he describe the very essence of what makes these two kinds of people different? 
So, so look with me first at the mighty man or the warrior, the evil man, beginning of verse 1. He says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love wor- all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And so the psalmist describes a, a man who boasts of evil. In other words, here's a person, a human being, who doesn't just do evil, knowing it's evil, and then hide it. No, but here's, here, here's a person who, who does that which is evil, and then boasts and actually finds his identity in it, actually describes himself and takes great pride in his accomplishments, which the Bible typifies as being evil. His tongue plots destruction, aims at the destruction of, of people, of cities, um, of, 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 of whole families. The, the, the background to this psalm is, is when, when Doeg, Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul. Now this, this is a little-known story from David's life. David's on the run from Saul. Saul is the king. Um, Saul feels threatened by the successes of David, David's um, prowess in the battlefield. Um, the people have begun to love David and celebrate David. And so David, um, uh, David is seen as a threat by Saul. And so Saul has kind of began to wield all of his power to seem to it um, that David is killed. David and his men are on the run. They're trying to flee from Saul, trying to flee from Saul, hunting them down. Um, they, they find themselves um, with a priest. Um, this, this priest provides them with bread to eat. They haven't eaten in days. Um, and David needs a sword. And so um, this priest happened to be the priest that's keeping hold of Goliath's old sword. Maybe you know the story of David and Goliath. David had um, this, this great kind of moment of salvation came to Israel as, as David kills Goliath and taking Goliath's sword, cuts off Goliath's head. Oh, this sword was kept by this priest. It's kind of this memento, this remembrance of the day that through David, God had saved Israel. Well, David um, gets the sword and takes it. It becomes his weapon um, as he leaves um, this household. But there, when David was fed, his men were fed and taken care of provision was given to them, when a weapon was given to them. And there was a man named Doeg there who watched it all quietly, the text tells us. Saul comes looking for David. He's looking for any kind of rumors where David might be, where David might be hiding. And Doeg comes forward. Doeg, the Edomite, comes forward. And, and we don't know the motivation. The text doesn't give it to us. Um, but certainly there was some reward to be gained, some leverage to be gained, maybe getting in, with, in well with, with King Saul. Uh, Doeg comes and says, hey, I actually saw David. I saw his men. Um, he, he went. He was fed by this priest and his family. They were cared for. They were given provision. And then they left. Saul turns to his men and orders that his men would go to this village, slaughter every man, woman, and child in that village, including the family of the priest. His men refuse. Doeg takes his sword, goes and slaughters the family, kills everyone in the village, and one man escapes to tell David what happened. The background of this psalm is that when that man came to David, David then wrote this psalm. And we don't know who he has in mind. Is he talking about Doeg? Is he talking about Saul? Probably both. 
But he proclaims, he tells, he says, that this man plots destruction. He's a worker of deceit. He loves evil more than good, lying more than speaking what is right. He describes a kind of life marked by a tongue that will cut, that will lie, that will deceive, that will do whatever it needs to do to get ahead. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've done it. You want to get the next advancement. Or someone you know wants the next advancement in their career. And so you play the game. You twist the truth. You manipulate things so that you can make the next step. The outcome of this kind of life, David says, is that God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. There will be no stability. There will be no rest. There will be no longevity in this kind of life. But the other kind of life is a life described as the righteous, the, the upright in heart. And here, the outcome of that sort of life is described as, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever. So here's um, the alternative to that kind of life, this kind of life of, of not being uprooted and cast from the tent. I'm never having a place to dwell. I'm never knowing home. But here's a life that bears fruit, a life that bears fruit in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And then right in the middle of those two descriptions, we have David's observation, the righteous observation of what is the difference between these two kinds of life. And we would expect to find right here in verse 7 that the righteous look at Doeg. They look at some of us. They look at these evil men and they say, behold the man who lied a lot. But behold the man who deceived a lot. But behold the man who, who sought other people's destruction. That's not what you find. See, the Bible divides the world, but it doesn't divide it how we think it would. It doesn't look at this lying man, this deceptive man, this destructive man, and fundamentally observe his behavior. It observes something else, something far more insightful. And that's why I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning. Look with me at verse 6. The righteous shall see. They're going to see this man judged and condemned by God. They shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. In other words, they look at this man who faces the judgment of God, they, they divide the world in two. But, but the division that's established is unlike the way anybody else in the world establishes this division. You see, most religions, all religions, in fact, will divide the world in, in, in two in this way. They'll say, hey, um, the, the God of the universe, whoever that God may be, whatever his name is, he's given us orders to live a certain way, to do certain things, and to avoid doing other things. And so the world is divided by those who do those things 
and those who don't do those things. So, so the moral and the upright over here, you guys are just going to be the moral and the upright. That's okay. I hope you qualify. Good. Okay. And, and, and the wicked people over here, just dirtbags. Just joking. The, 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 those who don't do what the religion requires and those who do do what the religion requires. That, that's how all religions in the world, save Christianity, divide the universe. Those who do what is right and those who do what is wrong. But the Bible doesn't divide the world that way. No, it divides the world along these lines. Those who take refuge in God and those who refuse to take refuge in God. Those who trust in the wisdom of God and the goodness of God and those who trust in their own wisdom and their own goodness. Those who trust, who rely, who find their identity in the love of God for them and those who find their identity in, put their whole trust in their own accomplishments, their own wealth, their own ways of living in the world. The world is divided in two. I started this week a book by David Brooks called The Road to Character. It's interesting as he begins on to establish his thesis, at the heart of it is this same division. That there is a division in the world between what he calls Adam 1 and Adam 2. Now, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know exactly what, how he's going to get to the root of it. But essentially, he describes, as he observes the world, he sees two, two basic kinds of people in the world. There's a group of people he designates as Adam 1, and their life is spent on their own success. It's measured by their own accomplishments. They are utterly and most foundationally self-referential. Um, everything ultimately is about them, their accomplishments, their wealth, um, um, what they have done and what they have earned. Adam 2, however, um, isn't like that. Adam 2 um, seems to be liberated from that in some way. He hasn't, um, I'll tell you where he gets at the end. Um, he hasn't told us quite yet what the, what the end is. Uh, but, but that liberation has led to a kind of life um, that is ordered around a different set of principles. It's a very principled life. Um, it's a life that is very rooted. And yet it's a life marked by freedom. The freedom to love other people. The freedom to be oriented towards the good, the joy of other people. A freedom that doesn't take its own accomplishments, its own name, its own wealth so seriously. And so we find at the very heart of this text essentially two ways to live in the world. Those who will find their refuge in the steadfast covenant love of God. Foundationally for them, their identity, their hope, their sense of self, um, their, their, sense, their whole sense of self is defined not by what they get done this week, and not by their own set of accomplishments, and not by how much other men or women honor them, but, but by a sense that the God of the universe loves them, that he sings over them in delight. And as David looks out at these two massively different outcomes, 
On, on the one hand, this person is established forever in the presence of God, bearing life-giving fruit forever and ever and ever. And on the other side, these people are cast out. They, they, they don't have a home. They don't know the presence of God. In fact, ultimately their life kind of seems to devolve into some sort of um, kind of self-centered, self, um, self-bent life that, that devours other people. He says the bottom line difference between these two kinds of people in the world it's not a set of ethics, it's not a set of morality, it's not a set of practices, it's not political agendas. It's who do you trust? Where do you find your refuge? Where is your hope? And I want to be clear, this isn't fundamentally the difference between the religious and the irreligious. One of my favorite lines from Flannie O'Connor, I want to read it. It's from Wise Blood. She says that the boy didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What she's saying in that story are there are very, very religious people who are utterly bent on avoiding Jesus. Now, now, the difference between the two is not religion or irreligion any more than it's between Republican or Democrat. No, this difference, it, it, it at its heart, has to do with where is your hope? Where is your trust? I'm listening again to the, the text. It says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Um, th- this, this kind of refusal to find refuge in God often looks extremely religious. You come to church, you say your prayers. Last night, you stopped and didn't have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You did whatever the thing is that you're supposed to do, um, but, but the reason you did it was not because you find refuge in God, not because you delight in God, not because you trust in God. But no, God is simply a means to the end that you want, and so you do these things to somehow bargain with him. To get him to give you what you want. And, and, and we, can, um, we can squabble over whether the, the secular version of this or religious version of the secular look down their noses at, at that kind of practice. But at the essence, they're, they're totally the same. I want what I want. My identity is going to be built by my accomplishments. My, my hope and my refuge is going, to be, um, is going to be tallied up in my bank account. My life is, is utterly measured by my own sense of accomplishment, my own sense that I've earned love, earned grace, earned respect, earned honor. My refuge, my hope, my trust is in my own ways. And there are massive ramifications to this. If you think that way, it means you actually believe that the, the money you have in your bank account is yours. You can do with it whatever you want. And it's not. It's a gift. You begin to think that, that your job tomorrow, that, that, that most of you are going to walk into, 
That the reason why you've been, been given position, the reason why you've been given power, um, the reason why you're in that job is either to, to make much of yourself, to kind of um, make sure that you advance in the right kind of degree rapidly enough, earning enough money, get enough money in your bank account, or, or maybe just earning just enough money so you can get your epic pass and ski. But whatever the thing happens to be, and your job is about you. It's about your accomplishment, your sense of self-worth, um, your sense of, of, of finally having achieved something. So your hope, your trust, your refuge is in what you can get done tomorrow. This is the world we live in. We live in Denver, Colorado. There might, be, there might not be another place on earth that celebrates this kind of individualistic outlook on life more than our culture. I am what I accomplish. I'm not bound to anyone. I will trust in my own wisdom, my own ways. But there's another way to live. And it's not simply doing the right things. No, look. Verse 8. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. My oldest kids are ten and a half. I um, think that if you would have come to me 11 years ago and asked me, hey, Brian, you're, you're going to have twins here in a few months. Your, your wife's going to have twins. Um, and then you're going to hold them. Um, what do you think the hardest thing about being a good dad is going to be? I, I would have probably said a whole lot of things, but what, what I wouldn't have said to you at that moment, if you ask me, hey, what's going to be the most difficult thing, the hardest thing, the biggest challenge, and at the same time, simultaneously, I would argue now, this side of these last 10 and a half years, the absolute most central and important part of being a dad. What I would not have said to you 10 and a half years ago is that the most important and most difficult thing to do is to communicate them, communicate to them in such a way that they really believe it, that I love them. That I'm absolutely delighted in them. That I have for them a covenantal, unbreakable love for them as my children. And I'm not talking about when, when, when you're having fun and you're, it's kind of laughing, fun afternoon. Um, like yesterday morning, we went and we went hiking um, out in Boulder. And that first part of the day was really, really fun. Crazy thing is though, when it's 90-something degrees and you're out in the sun and then you get back in the car and then you're going to have to run some errands. Suddenly, um, nobody likes each other in the car. Um, like, you're all just like, no one likes each other. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm talking about... In, in, Maybe not even then. I'm talking about in those moments when they've done something wrong. Not, not, it's not stupid. Like, not one of those things where they did something stupid and you came and said, hey, that was stupid. Don't do that anymore. I'm talking about those moments when, hey, there's an established universal rule in our home. You don't do act. You don't steal. You don't steal from your sister. You don't, you don't steal from me. You don't steal from other people. Um, you, you, don't, uh, you don't steal from your brother. And then you discover and they discover that you discover and it somehow happens all together. They did that. 
And the hardest thing in that moment is not getting them to look me in the eyes and go, yeah, I should not, like, finally recognize, hey, this was a bad thing to do. No, no. The, the hardest thing in that moment is not convincing them that what they did was wrong. No, the hardest thing and the most important thing is them to look me in the eyes and know beyond a shadow of doubt, my dad loves me. He absolutely loves me. He loves me with a steadfast kind of love. Sure, we're going to talk through, we're going to talk about discipline, we're going to do discipline, we're going to do the whole thing of whatever this deal was. But what's not in question in this moment is the steadfast love of my father. I've found in my own Christian life that the most difficult and yet the most absolutely essential and vital part of just learning to walk with Jesus, just learning to love other people, is to go with the metaphor a little bit, to look my father in the eyes and to trust in his absolute, unshakable, steadfast love for me. And that is the dividing line in the world. And, and right here, some of you are going to want to take me aside after the service and say, Brian, you're a preacher, a pastor, and your job is to get people to behave morally, to do the right thing. And, and you're telling them that the most important thing to learn right now is not how to stop being lying to see people with their tongue. No, the most important thing right now is that they trust in the steadfast love of God. Um, that, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot there. What you need to tell them is God loves you, maybe. Probably. We'll see if you can make it to 5 p.m. without being deceitful and destroying people with your words or slaughtering a whole village. If you can make it to 5 God will love you for one more night. But that is to presume that my fundamental job, that the pastors of Park Church's fundamental job is to get you to behave differently. It's not. It is to hold up to you this glorious, beautiful truth. The God of the universe loves you. He delights in you. He sings over you as a father, a good father, not a bad father, not a crummy father, a good father, sings over his children. He delights in you. The, the call of the Christian faith, the dividing line in the whole world, in fact, the thing I would say that makes Christianity unique among all the religions of the world is that it first and foremost does not come to you. God does not come to you um, as slaves commanding you to obey him. No, here's the, the genius of who our God is. And it's, I mean, we should just all take a step back and marvel at how smart he is. Because he's smart. I don't know if you knew that. God is smart. One of the qualifications of being God. <laughs> He doesn't come to you as a slave saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. No, he comes to you as a father. He says, I will stop at nothing 
to be with you. I will adopt you, I will redeem you, I will cleanse you, I will forgive you, I will empower you, I will do whatever it takes for you to be my children. See, see here, here's what happens. Let's say my son, it would definitely be my son. Let's say he has this crazy desire to go out and do car dodging on a Saturday afternoon on Federal. He's never done this, but I can imagine him thinking it. Especially on a Saturday afternoon when there's a Broncos game. And so he has this innate desire to prove his athleticism. He saw it in a movie. People were jumping on cars and rolling and stuff. So he wants to go outside and jump and roll in cars. He wants to do it. Feels like it would be good. It, would, it wouldn't hurt anybody. He's not even heavy enough to dent a car. Dad, if you did it, you would dent the car. If I do it, it's just going to roll right through it. So we're going to be fine. Um, I, I'm going to do this kind of dodge, dodge car thing on Federal. He wants to do it. He longs to do it. He has a desire to do it. And then here comes dad. And dad says, no. Now, in that moment, if he trusts in the unfailing, mine's failing, but it's meant to be a picture of the unfailing covenant love of God for him, then then he's going to recognize two things. One, my dad is smart-ish. Two, he loves me. He's not trying to keep good things from me. He's not trying to withhold joy and pleasure and delight from me. No, no, he wants my good. He wants my pleasure. He wants my delight. He's not a killjoy. He, he, he wants my good. And I don't always understand it. I know that I long for this. I want this. I desire this. I don't feel like I can be completely a good 10-year-old boy unless I've done this. Um, but, but trusting in the love of my father, I'm going to obey him. Uh, what this does is it doesn't, it doesn't end the need for obedience. No, it, it creates a kind of loving, submitted obedience to a God who doesn't come to you like a slave master, but comes to you as a good father. So, so when he orders our lives with regards to sex, he's not a killjoy. He's not trying to destroy pleasure. He's not mean. He's smart, and he loves you. But when he tries to, to, to order your life around saying, hey, and the best kind of life is a life where you lay down your life, you lay down your own good for the good of other people. He's not just trying to create an army of martyrs. He's trying to create a people in their private life, in their relationships, in their marriage, with their children, at work, where their whole lives are bent. Not, not just trying to hear from a slave master and say, okay, if I'm supposed to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, whatever the thing is. No, no, saying, no, he's smart and he's good. And he says, this is the kind of life I'm to live. I trust him. This, this trusting in the steadfast love of God, finding your refuge in the steadfast love of God, it'll change everything about your life. An observation was made. Um, I've actually heard this story told and I experienced it. I was talking to a, um, a young man who's not a Christian. He's asking tons of questions about the Christian faith. And, and he 
as he came forward and began, to, we were talking about the book of Galatians, we were talking about how God freely forgives us and loves us, um, um, sends his son to die in our place. We might be adopted and loved and forgiven. Um, and, and most people see that as like, what, that just sounds like a, a blank check to go live however I want to live. But, but he saw it differently. He saw uh, right then and he asked this question. Um, he, he said, well, if that's true, well, then there's nothing he can't ask of us. It means my whole life is now his. Right? Well, if you see the steadfast love of God, if you see the boundless, glorious, merciful grace of a God, you come to terms with the fact there is nothing He can't ask of you. This is the logic of this psalm, the logic of the Bible, and the heart of the gospel. The God who showers us with steadfast love, who calls us to trust in his steadfast love. And then knowing that steadfast love, to walk in joy and obedience and gratitude and thanksgiving. I want to end by reading this quote from John Owen. He's an English Puritan. Um, one of his most famous works is a work, I think his most important works, a book called Communion with God. It's a stunningly beautiful book. But I'm going to read this quote to you that explains what I believe to be the heart of not only this psalm, but the gospel itself. Who would not love him? I've been with the Lord Jesus, may the poor soul say. I have left my sins, my burden with him, and he hath given me his righteousness. Wherewith I am going with boldness to God, I was dead and I am alive, for he died for me. I was cursed and I am blessed, for he was made a curse for me. I was troubled, but I have peace, for the chastisement of my peace was upon him. I knew not what to do, nor whither to cause my sorrow to go. By him I have I received joy unspeakable and glorious. If I do not love him, delight in him, obey him, live to him, die for him, I am worse than the devils in hell. Let's pray. So, oh God, may we be compelled by that kind of love. That may we see your love, may we know your love, may we be drenched with a transformational sense, an overwhelming sense that the God of the universe loves me. He's forgiven my sins in the body and the blood of Jesus. He's adopted me as a son. And he is not a disgruntled father. He's not a bummed out father that you, oh God, sing with joy over your people. Oh God, may all of our obedience, all of our living, all of our dying be marked by a trust, a deep trust in the steadfast love of God. Oh, may we find refuge in you. In your name we pray, amen.